Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with my very good friend, Daniele Bolelli. He is an absolute legend in the space of history, anthropology, evolutionary psychology. Uh, he is a professor, he is an author, and he is a host of the podcast, The Drunken Taoist and History on Fire. Uh, this conversation is all about the loneliness epidemic that is happening among humans in general and especially men. I think this conversation is wildly important to share. There are a lot of men in particular hurting in the world right now. Uh, statistically speaking, men are four times more likely to commit suicide uh, than women. Women are two times more likely to experience bouts of depression, uh, but men are four times more likely to actually end their lives as a product of internal pain, ultimately, I presume. Um, and it is something that is I think overwhelming in society presently and it's something that is lurking behind closed doors because people perhaps don't have the tools to talk about it or feel safe to talk about it and so this conversation i think is a, a very powerful one and i'm very grateful to get to have someone as uh, spectacular of a, a thinker and a leader as daniele on to have a conversation um so share it with somebody i think that would be supportive for the world and uh take it in and I hope it helps in your own journey, your own path. If you know a man, uh, if you are a man, and uh, I think human connection is the foundation for health and well-being based off of what most of the research suggests. There's a lot of research around that. Uh, human contact, uh, feeling like you have close interpersonal relationships. It is what keeps this thing going. And uh, we are at an extreme deficit of that, culturally speaking, right now. So that is what this conversation is about. I hope you guys devour it. Thank you so much for subscribing so you get each week's episodes. Thank you for sharing it. And um, thank you for the reviews on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to this. That is it. That is all. Let's get to it with my guy, Daniele Bolelli. I want to start off reading a few uh, pretty troubling statistics mm -hmm. in relation to uh, loneliness, uh, particularly with men, which is something that I, I don't think there's enough attention on culturally. Um, men, for one thing, this isn't one of the st stats that I'm going to read, but it's from something else. Men are four times more likely to end their own lives uh, than women. Women are two times more likely to experience depression. Uh, but men seem to have some level of deficit on their capacity to cope with emotions. So that was a part of you know, what we, I was excited to talk to you about today. Mm -hmm. uh, this is called a friendship recession. American have, I'm just going to read some of this stuff. American men have been hit the hardest. According to the AEI, uh, AEI's survey, Center on American Life and Gallup, uh, the percentage of men with at least six close friends fell by half between 1990 and 2021. One in five single men say they have no close relationships. Uh, research shows that social isolation can weaken the immune system and make someone more likely to suffer from a variety of ailments, including sleep disruption, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, inflammation, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's. Um, it can cause or be correlated to more violence in culture. Um, some of the reasons of why, which is what we'll get into. Um, maybe I'll just wait and allow us to get into that. Um, but a part of it is 
men tend we met we tend to socialize young boys in particular to hide their vulnerabilities and value toughness and stoicism over emotional sensitivity and connection um, men are less likely than women to share their personal feelings with and receive emotional support from friends uh, there's a lot of stuff in that so what do you think is going on here and is it a relevant thing to be informed apart uh, about and share about and explore Yes, I mean, this is a, as big as a topic as it gets, you know, because this is, if we had a functioning political system, there should be a immediate, this is an emergency. We mm. need to do something when you have, because the reality, I mean, I saw, I don't know if it's the same study or not, but I saw, yeah, a statistic that said about 15% of men reported not having a single friend yeah. and about 10% of women reported the same. Yeah. So, those are insane statistics because you're not just saying 10 and 50%, which in itself would be atrocious, but they're just talking about people who have zero friends. Think about the people who have, you know, couple of friends who are not really good friends who just are not really there for them when they need them. You know, their friendship is they talk once a month and shoot the shit for, you know, that in itself is not really all that fulfilling. So the 10 to 15% is purely people who have nobody, not people who have friendships that are lacking, that are not delivering what they actually emotionally need, which if we include that, I think the proportion would go sky high. Mm. Now, when you have numbers like that, that is the symptom of a society that's heading for the cliff uh, real fast. Because mm. this is, those are not functioning numbers. So when you have that many people who feel lonely, alienated, and it, it, then no surprise that the statistics regarding the use of antidepressants are what they are. The statistics about suicide are constantly increasing. Because you basically have a society that's built on a foundation that does not cater to the most essential human needs, which is human connection. Yeah. And There's a, oh, go on. No, no. I mean, I think it's like it's a I don't think it's a uniquely US problem. I think it's happening in many parts of the world. I think US takes it to the extreme. It's like further down this path than other places, but by no means this is a US unique issue. Yeah. Something that I've so I've been going through a bunch of therapy the last few months. Mm -hmm. Um and in that experience, something that I've found to be really valuable is the strength in being willing to be vulnerable enough, vulnerable enough to ask for help. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a, a term that I recently learned is, is called uh, male normal alexithymia. And what that means essentially, or normative alexithymia. And uh, what that means is a, is a person, male, and the male normative, normative version of it, that has an inability to be able to actually verbally express their internal emotions. Mm -hmm. And so you have all of these feels and it might feel like anxiety, it might feel like depression, it might feel like maybe suicidal ideation, it might just feel like you're about to implode or explode or you just need to run as fast as you can because you have so much building up. Mm -hmm. And there's not really a, a, a verbal outlet at least um, you haven't developed the instrumentation to be able to process those internal sensations in a, an effective verbal way. And that's where it would come into the place of, like I, we were, before we started recording, I, I mentioned I lived in Hawaii for a while. And there, fighting is a part of the culture. Mm -hmm. It's like the way you make a close friend 
statistically speaking, there's a very good chance you're friends with that person because you had a brutal fight and you found respect for each other in, in the, in the war. And then afterwards you're like, Oh bro, I see you. Like you're my guy. <laughs> and then if you look at the education in, in Hawaii, generally speaking, at least when I was, I was there, you know, 15 years ago, right. um, that was struggling. I don't know what's happening there now. Um, there's a lot of, uh, drug use, you know, particularly with meth, you know, so I think that would be some type of like, almost like a distraction or like a balm to kind of temporarily suppress those internal sensations because uh, addic- addicts, people that are, that have addictive behavior oftentimes are the most sensitive people mm-hmm. and we kind of throw them into a, a bucket as like a problem. Uh, but in fact, oftentimes it's like they have so much sensation and they don't actually have the tools to, to process it. Yeah. Um, what do you think about that? I think you're 100% correct because being sensitive is uh, is a gift up to a point in the sense that if you learn how to deal with it, it's a huge gift because it gives you the ability to have greater empathy. It gives you the ability to your highs are way higher than most people. It gives you, you, know, it gives you a ton of wonderful things if you learn how to deal with it. If you don't, it's the worst course because you are dealing with the fact that you are constantly getting is like being in the middle of the ocean during a storm right you have little control over what's happening to you you feel tossed around by your emotion high and down and left and right and you're like man can i just be normal for a minute you know can i just have it easy and flat and that's not an option. You know, when you have that kind of sensitivity, that's simply not an option. So you either learn how to deal with it in a way that will turn into a gift or it's going to really mess you up. Hmm. And the problem is that, I mean, I think there are multiple issues. There are one that you mentioned regarding the social aspect of it, of how we are raised. Um You know, you grow up around people who don't know how to express themselves. You don't have a role model for what it means. Plus, we get the bullshit dualistic approach. So because there are certain traits that are valuable, you know, it is valuable to be strong, to be tough, to be resilient, to be all those things. They're not bad things. They're good things. But in the name of a dualistic mentality, we see that at the exclusion of being sweet and sensitive and kind and expressive and all of that. It's perceived, reality, as, it's perceived as, as weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Where the reality is that they should go together. Like one without the other is bullshit. You know, being strong without being kind, it's not a good value. You know, being yeah. tough, stoic, and, and be able to endure things, unless you have the ability to have empathy and sweetness and com- good communication skills, it's not such a great thing. Vice versa, being sweet and kind, if you can get your act together, I mean, it's better than being an asshole, but it's not really, you're still extremely ineffective. You can get stuff done. And no, you're a sweet person, you know, but you're like a pet or something. You know, you're like, okay, nice, sweet, but there's nothing. So to me, the idea that we privilege some of these values at the expense of the others is one of the dumbest mistakes that we can make as a culture and as individuals. Because the reality is that most of these things that people put an or in between, you know, do you want to be strong or sensitive? It's like, no, no, it's not or, it's and. Without and, neither one of those halves work by itself very well. 
Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to go on an anthropological journey mm-hmm. and kind of start with the origins of the human. Mm-hmm. And what is the human's relationship been to community and tribe and connection from, you know, as day one as you could go? Right. Uh, and have there been any standout transition points where we started to move into a more lonely, individualistic culture? Yeah, I think that's a hundred percent right. This, uh, it's in our DNA to be part of a tribe. It's in our DNA to be part of a close knit community. That's how we, how humanity was born. How humanity continued to live for ninety plus percent of the time we've been around. Um, so the idea of being part of a close knit community is so wired in us that we are really not well adapted to live outside of it. But then what happened is that largely as a result of the Industrial Revolution, so something very recent in historical times. And then, you know, largely when you look at it, probably the last 200 years or so have changed dramatically what the way humans live from being part of a small community, never mind earlier when we lived in actual tribes, but even living, you know, when we move away from tribes to living in villages, there's still community, less than there used to be, but there's still community. But when you start moving in the direction of uh, hyper-individualism, and I say hyper because some aspects of individualism are good. There are some aspects where being able not to be completely influenced by your the surroundings of your small community that may kind of squash some aspects of your personality, those are good things. I say hyper because it's taking it to a place where individualism is no longer a healthy thing, but it becomes, in the name of individual freedom, you have no connection to any community. You can drop all your contacts and move across the country in a second because in the name of uh, a good job or whatever, that's the ultimate capitalist dream, right? Drop everything. As long chase the opportunities, human relationships are disposable. You can get new friends at the new place. You can get new everything at the new place. You can see your family for Christmas or some crap. And it's all in the name of efficiency in a career they have chosen. Hmm. That's largely at the roots of so much of the crap that we go through. Because once you start sacrificing the entire community aspect, well, guess that's just, now you may have the greatest job in the world. You live in a nice house and you're lonely as fuck. And, and the only thing that has changed is that now you can afford the designer label antidepressants rather than the generic brand. You know? Yeah. I wonder, like, one of the things that I've, I've read is that part of Darwin's theory of evolution and the popularized concept of you know, the survival of the fittest only the strong will survive. Um, one of the bigger concepts that he was about was actually the power of cooperation. Mm-hmm. And cooperation is really truly the thing that makes the human thrive yeah. and makes the human be the, the, the king of all the species yeah. and be able to kind of dominate the planet mm-hmm. in the way that we have. And so that really truly is what got us here. It's our capacity for communication, our capacity for connection, our, pro- our capacity for problem solving with a group. Yeah. You know, if you were to look or if I were to look or anybody listening in front of you right now, you're seeing the sweat equity and problem solving of 
thousands of years of evolution mm -hmm. from tens or hundreds or millions of different individuals all manifesting themselves in this thing that we call a computer or this thing that I call a microphone yeah. or these windows or this light bulb. It's like the imprint of, of all of humanity, like the consciousness of humanity. And then we have it in front of us and we see like, ah, like computer, individualized point of awareness. It's like, no, no, no. Like you are literally living, breathing community. If you use anything in your life, you're engaged in the echo of community. It's pretty Handle freaking cool. cool. <laughs> you, know, you think we're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent, right? Because there's nothing that any tool, you take a look in your room, 99.99% of the stuff that's in there, you didn't build it. You probably don't know how to build it. You have, uh, you know, what made humans, because yeah, humans from a biological standpoint are pretty low on the strength aspect of the animal kingdom you know we're not the thing that made us as you say the thing that made us thrive is cooperation is the ability to work as a tribe without a tribe we lose a huge chunk of what makes us human and so we become just cogs in a machine where we are effective we are our job we have our career we are but we lack what it means to be us at a deep-rooted mm. level. And I don't think, I mean, then people wonder, huh, I wonder why we have uh, the rates of suicide that we do. I wonder why we have the rates of depression that we do. It's like, no shit, if you take an animal that's a social animal and you completely remove the social aspect from it, the animal is going to go crazy. You know, there's, there's a famous study that they did regarding rats where they would say it was about rats, and I believe it was cocaine, where if rats had the ability to kind of tap into and get a cocaine hit, they would do it to death, right? Stop drinking, stop doing anything else. And, and somebody was using it as a, a proof of like, you see how powerful of a drug this is. Mm. And somebody else said, wait, time out, stop a second. This is a rat who's in a fucking cage with without really much contact with that it's it's a rat hell of course is doing cocaine 24 7 let's put a rat in a place where there's a bunch of contact with other rats it has a fantastic did you create rat heaven right where they have a million of activities lots of social life lots of these and you still have access to the cocaine the same way they would try it take a hit it's like cool and then they were pretty much done with it most of them would just say because they didn't there was no drive toward it because their life was so fulfilling that they were like, eh, yeah, it's cool. Once in a while, whatever, maybe, maybe not. But so that to me is interesting because it shows you, and granted, these are rats, but I wouldn't be surprised if you do the exact thing with humans if it works the same way. If you have a super fulfilling life, if you have super fulfilling relationships, if you are in an environment that fits you in that fashion, a lot of the things that are modern social problems would be way less appealing because you're not, what's the incentive to load up on drugs that are designed either to numb you or to take you away from your current reality if your current reality is so much better than anything that a drug can deliver, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they call that Rat Park. It was yeah. done in, in uh, I think it was done in Vancouver. It was done in British Columbia, I'm pretty sure Vancouver. And yeah, that's, I mean, I, I one of the suggestions of why people generally speaking are becoming so darn lonely um mm -hmm. is the you know the nuclear family and the individuated household where it's you know just me alone in my apartment 
just figuring this thing out. You know, and I think that oftentimes people can, or, or I, uh, can have the perception that everyone else has this like illustrious social no. lifestyle, you know, and they're all going out and they're, they're amazing. You see their stories and they're so happy and, you know, you see the highlight reel and, you know, every, there lots of people have talked about different iterations of that, yeah. but the reflection of that can be pretty daunting. I feel at least it has been for myself in various different moments. And historically speaking, like where did pe- how did people, how have people lived typically for the bulk of human history compared to living alone in an apartment? Right. I mean, the majority of human history, we have been hunters and gatherers living in small tribes. You know, that's actually would be considered prehistory, but that's the majority of the human experience is 90 plus percent of that. We have been small scale hunters and gatherers, members of a tight knit community of anywhere between 15 and roughly 50 people, occasionally bigger. Some of these also there's fission and fusion. So you in summer resources are more abundant. You join with the other bands and you live with 300 people for three months. Winter is a little more scarce. You break down in smaller groups. But typically, that has been our experience, right? It's being part of a tribe. So you are constantly have uh, your family and friends around you in all your activities. That's the human experience. Everything that happened afterwards is an experiment. And by experiment, I even mean the last uh, eight, 10,000 years, you know, when farming started becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. And initially, it's not that different because, okay, now you're not, um, you're not nomadic anymore, but you do live in a small village. You know everybody in that village. All your family lives in that village. All your friends live in that village. So you're a farmer, but you're really not that different from a hunter and gatherer in that regard. You know, you're still part of the, the same dynamics. Once things build to a certain numbers, when you're no longer a face-to-face community, you're not in the 100, 200, 300, 500 people. Now you're in the thousands. Now you don't know everybody. Now you don't trust everybody else because you're not, again, part of a situation where you share things because it's your family. Of course, you can grab whatever you want of mine, just try to bring it back kind of thing. Now you don't trust them. Now there's more private property. You build higher walls. You have to watch out for your neighbors because you don't know who the hell they are. And clearly, the bigger the number gets, the more separated from community it's it's a paradox right you live with few people you're actually a tight-knit community you live with lots of people there's no community left you live in a city with millions of people you hardly know your neighbor has or anybody else you know yeah so that and that is a dot in historical time you know the number of people who have lived that way and the time that we have tried living that way is a tiny dot the Industrial Revolution kicks this into high gear, where it becomes much more so that way, and then you know even more so with the information age and the last hundred years or so. Mm. So all of these is like there's a clear proven way that humans have lived as that has gone on for tens of thousands of years, and then there are experiments that have been run in the last few thousands years, even more so in the last hundred to two hundred years. Yeah, there's something interesting that happens in the accountability of a smaller group because it it autocorrects itself in a way, or like self-regulates. Mm-hmm. 
So when you're in a smaller computer, like I lived in Bend, Oregon for a while as well, which is a smaller community. It's like a hundred thousand people, but everyone just seems to like know your name. And you know, you could ask almost anybody in the street for a favor Mm -hmm. and people are like, yeah, I got you. I'll probably see you in the next six days. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like you'll, you probably, there'll be reciprocity in this. Yeah. Um, Whereas if you're in a, a situation like you live in, you know, big metropolitan space, there's a good chance, you know, if you go out on a date with somebody and you do wrong by them, you'll probably never see that person again. Yep. You know, so if you screw somebody, you cut somebody off on the road, you flick somebody off, you're never going to see that asshole again. It's yep. over. Yep. Like you just, you just get to express all your little like boy psychology, angry, I didn't get my way stuff or whatever your thing is. And you're like, ah, oh, cool, sweet. That was good. But if you live in a smaller, more tight-knit community, it self-regulates in a way where you're like, oh, God, there's this accountability. Okay. And that is, I think that's like, a, that is a really major, major thing. So how does a person start to integrate some of that like ancestral wisdom or like small tribal society type lifestyle um, or temperament into a metropolitan existence? Like, is that even like a viable option? I mean, the fact that... I think, first of all, it should be a goal, not just as for you or me as individuals, but it should be part of the discussion that is like, hey, we are dealing with a huge mental health crisis. We are dealing with unprecedented levels of loneliness and alienation. We should do something about it. Once we agree that we should do something about it, then we should look at what are the possible steps. And largely, I mean, I think this is the daunting part, is that if you really want to solve some of this stuff, you have to really rebuild some of the foundations of our societies, not only as skills that we learn as individuals, not only as uh, personal priorities, but even basic things like architecture. You know, if you were to build architecture that's designed for a small village within a larger community, so you have five, six, eight, ten, fifteen houses kind of looking inward with a common garden where you share the garden with you you make a point that your friends move into the houses close to you. You can have a village within a city and then it's something that you can get the best of both worlds, right? You can get the flexibility of city life, the modern convenience of city life without sacrificing the village aspect of it. That's not an easy thing to arrange because everything, again, is not designed in that fashion. Again, from architecture to everything else, try finding a way to get all your friends to live all in the same neighborhood and share. It's not an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so if we recognize that that's important to us, that we should make it a priority, then we should start looking at all the many, 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 many aspects in in which that could be favored. So from jobs, Clearly, it's easier if you have online jobs than if you have physical jobs because you have the flexibility of choosing where you live. You can uh, address it in terms of, uh, yeah, the shape of the houses you live in, the kind of common space that you share with people. In terms of priority, because, of course, it doesn't do no good if, say, you're part of a community if you don't do the job to actually be there, talk to people, communicate, and do all this. So there's a level of commitment to this. There are many, many aspects if you want to solve it at the, at the greater level. Of course, that's not where you start as an individual. It's like you, can, you don't have the power to make this happen with a snap of a finger. I mean, maybe if you have like $300 million, you can do that and invite all your friends to live next to you. But for most people, that's simply not realistic. 
So I think then if we look at a simpler step, start with the basics. Call your friends on a regular basis. You know, it's like, I don't know what your experience is, but like when somebody calls me and they just want to shoot the shit, they just want to see how I am, I'm almost taken aback. I'm like, really? You just want to talk to me? Whoa, that's incredible. That's uh, new. Because most of the time when people call me is because they want something. And not in a bad way, not like they are assholes, but like it's like it's a project, it's a work, it's a something that needs to happen. And so that's why they are interacting. In, rediscover the joy of interacting with your friends because you value hearing their voice, you value their insights, you value not because you have to get anything done, not because you are working together on a common project just for the pleasure of it. So one thing I do, for example, is that anytime I drive, and I know that I have an hour or two hour drive, I look at people in my phone book, people that I haven't talked to in a while, people that, hey, I miss that person. That's a cool person. I haven't talked to them in a while. And I make a point to, you know, I'm driving, I'll put speakerphone, and off I go, and I start, and I make it And my drive time becomes, let's catch up with my friends. Let's see how they are doing. Let's see what's going on. And of course, it's a two-way street, right? It doesn't help if you do it, but nobody ever does it back or they don't call back or you call them, you leave a message and they reply a week later. If they reply at all that, you know, you cannot drag a corpse along. They need to want it as well. But like making it a priority in terms of reaching out and making contact and having conversations, I would say that's probably step one. I want to take a moment and share a free resource with y'all to sort out your movement that is starting the first free week of the Align Method online program where you get a thorough movement assessment to establish what is your personal movement baseline. And then on top of that, we share fundamental mobility techniques that will make a massive difference in your own personal practice. If you do any type of stretching or yoga or foam rolling or resistance band training or training in general, you want to get the most out of your body. These are must know mobility techniques and then it finishes with a sit rise challenge so you can test yourself and see how effectively you get up and down off of the ground that is the first week of the align method online program it's a six-week program you can start the first week at alignpodcast.com slash a m p and with that you will also join the free align community where there's over three thousand other members in there so i pop in there each day totally free the first week is totally free and then if you don't love the idea of continuing on with the six-week program then you can cancel anytime so check us out over at alignpodcast.com slash a m p I think especially as a guy, a lot of our um, kind of objective-based conversations are that's packaging around seeking connection. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and sometimes it can be uncomfortable to reach out to someone, for me at least, uh, because I don't want to like waste their time, you right. know, and that kind of like scarcity perspective around, around time. Um, and, and also the other aspect of it is the fear of being perceived as weak again, sure. uh, because like, I, I, you know, man, I could really use a friend right now. I could use a buddy, you know, and that's like, oh, I don't want to like, uh, divert you away from your life or I don't want to, you know, harsh your mellow or whatever. Uh, but what I find is when I do actually 
talk to people in that way, uh, like I find that people show up like 10 X what I would anticipate. I'm like, Whoa, it's like almost you were like waiting for an opportunity to show up. But most of our relationship has been more predominantly, you know, around objective based goals. But the moments that one individual in a relationship or in a community kind of like takes the mask down temporarily, it's like, I actually just really could use a friend. It's like, whoa, it's like scary <laughs> <You know? laughs> to share that. But, but when, when a person does that, I think it, it opens up permission for the other person. And suddenly you have this deepening of your relationship. And then from there, maybe you create some cool objective-based goal stuff together. But it comes from this deepening of a relationship compared to just always doing stuff. For sure. And I think, I mean, you have, it's not like you actually have it good compared to most people. Because I know plenty of people will reach out and run into, hey, great talking to you, but I'm kind of in a hurry. I'll call you right back. And two weeks go by. And you run into that as well, right? And they are not even people who mean uh, who mean badly. But it, it has slipped out of their priority list, being human and making human connection. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's like, what's the worst that can happen? That you don't connect? You're already not connected. So might as well try. And maybe you run into the thing you are describing, which is when people are more than happy to be there for you and to engage in this deeper fashion. You know? Yeah, that's an interesting idea that our architecture is actually set up against uh, community. Yeah. And it's more geared towards productivity and individualization. Yeah. So that's a that's a fascinating concept that it's almost like the the, the architectural deck is stacked against yeah. modern culture compared to if you go to, to to Europe, for example, many places that have been in Europe, there's, you know, the common space is a part of culture. Right. And for a long time in a lot of places, like no building could be taller than the church. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have our common space where we come together all the time. You know, it's about family and connection and friends. We're drinking wine and we're dancing. And then there's no building higher than higher than God, you know, and so everything kind of revolves back to that. Whereas now, the, you know, the tallest building would be the, the Google building or the Facebook meta building or some corporation that is this, you know, capitalistic minded corporation, nothing you know wrong with, with capitalism or corporations or anything. Well, maybe sometimes it is. Um, but that's there's been a switch right. in our, our our ideological perspectives, and it's it's actually baked in to the architecture and the structure of the way that we live. So we're we're at a, a big advantage for kind of sterile productivity, mm-hmm. but a disadvantage for deep human meaningful connections. Hundred percent. I mean, I remember even being, and that's architecture, right? That's one aspect. In probably every other aspect, you run into the same block. I remember being in college, and when I was uh, considering graduate school, and I would talk to professor, and they were like, oh, you should go to Chicago because they have a good program for this, or you should go to... At my mind, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I don't know anybody in Chicago. Why would I go to Chicago? And they're, in their mind, was like, who cares? It's a good program. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know people. I, I want human connection. It's not replaceable. It's not that I can get rid of all my relationship and start over and it's fine. That's not my priority. I'll pick the schools within so many miles of where I live because I care about it. And keep right. in mind, I'm a guy who moved across continents. And that in itself was a weird one because to me, I grew up in Italy for the first 18 years of my life. Growing up in Italy, the level of 
time that you spend with friends, the level of like how much of a priority it is for people to regularly on a weekly basis, you go out with your friends, even if you work until late, you go hang out, your family's part of it. And that type, that type of stuff is how I was raised. And I was still feeling lonely, like that wasn't enough for the kind of tribal connection I was craving. And so I was like, ah, this sucks. And so then I moved to U.S. And then I realized what I took for granted in Italy was paradise compared to what I find in U.S. in terms of human connection. Because here I found a ton of what, for lack of a better term, I refer to as situational friendship. And what I mean by that is, you know, we are both, we're taking the same courses. You are the least annoying person in the classroom, so you'll be my school friend. Or we both go to the gym, you can be my workout buddy. Or we work in the same office, uh, the other people are, you are the nicest person in the 30 cubicles. But the moment I change job, I stop working out, or I graduate, it's like, goodbye, my dear situational friend. Maybe I'll send you a card for Christmas, but keeping in touch when I don't have to see you every day, ooh, that takes work. Hell no. I'll find a new situational friend somewhere else. And and so that was weird, but at the same time, I felt like, you know, I wasn't like I was that happy in Italy with human connections. So to be eh, not so happy, but have also less opportunity in terms of what I want to do with life or having it really miserable from the point of view of human connection and having way more opportunity. At that point, it's a toss up, right? Because it's like neither one is fulfilling me. So, you know, either could work, I guess, maybe neither one is ideal. Yeah. And then there's also, so there's the ability to verbally express how one's feeling, which has all sorts of physiological implications. Uh, but then there's also the actual, the value of actual physical contact. Yeah. And there's been some, some research around this. There's been lots of research around touch. There's a whole book by a woman called Tiffany Field that I, I reference in my book quite a bit because I have a whole chapter about touch. Um, and she did a thing with, uh, babies in particular. I mentioned on here a bunch, so I'll be kind of brief about it. Um, but she did a, a, some research with premature infants mm-hmm. and typically the idea would be keep them sterile, kind of keep yeah. them separate, you know, and it's just like, make sure they don't get sick. No, 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 no bugs in there. Uh, and then they ran an experiment where they just introduced, it was 15 minutes of touch two times a day for like a week. What they found was that just that total of 30 minutes of massage, like a little baby massage for those infants caused them to grow 47% faster than the children that were locked up in their sterile, isolated environment. Yeah. And the and, and there's, there's been research done with this with rat pups as well, baby rats, where they use a, a paintbrush to stimulate the licking of, of the mother that mm-hmm. causes them to be more emotionally well adapted, cause them to grow faster. Uh, and then the other, the other little bit in relation to like more sociologically speaking, uh, there was research done in, I think it was in McDonald's is around the world. And there was one, the American one was done in Miami, which I imagine there's probably more touch in Miami than a lot of other states. Uh, but they, I think they did in Italy, they did it in France, they did it a bunch of different places. And what they found was the United States was the lowest in the amount of actual contact in a conversation. Yeah. You know, so if you go to Italy or, you know, or Spain, but like particularly Italy, there's a lot of gesticulation yep. and a lot. Of, and I remember actually when I was out there, I thought that women were attracted to me because they would touch me. Mm-hmm. 
And so if I would have a conversation with a woman, old, young, whatever, she would like touch my arm and touch my shoulder and touch yeah. my, my, my thigh. And like, oh, and like, she'd like, she'd get excited, like shake me. And I'm like, whoa, like yeah. my American perception is like, oh, this woman, she's, you know, she's hot for me. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, no, that's actually baked in to their operating system because there's actually a deep healing mechanism, like an innate healing mechanism in that that's infused into culture that we've kind of drifted away from. And now there's all this fear around contact. And there's a lot of like um, boundaries, Mm -hmm. my boundaries, my boundaries, which boundaries are good, but it's, it's two sides of the coin. You can overdo either of those sides. And that was something that, and and the correlation with the, with the touch in those McDonald's is around the world was the places that had less touch were more violent yep. and, and they were more like outbursts from the children and, and more, they were just like more ordinary, like, like pent up energy. So it's almost like every time we just get like a little hug or just like a hand on the shoulder, yep. it sends this, this deep signal somewhere into our physiology. That's very old, old programming that suggests that we're safe and we don't need to try so hard and we don't need to maybe not try so, hard, but we don't need to like overcompensate. It's like, okay, you're safe. We love you. You're a part of the community. But when you go without that for too long, um, it creates, you know, problems. So I agree 100%. Like what happens with that is that, I mean, again, growing up in Italy, I see that big time moving to US. It's like the level of uh, constant contact with people. Like you meet somebody, you hug and kiss, right? That's kind of how it is. You always kiss Mm -hmm. on the cheek and you hug every time. And you do that multiple times a day. And these are just casual, like, yo, you meet somebody. Not even, like, with friends, there's constantly this hugging. And there's a lot of physicality involved, which is huge in terms of conveying affection, in terms of making you feel part of something. Like, my dad had this, like, he was very hardcore about it. He never wanted to buy, when I was tiny, he never wanted to buy a stroller because he was like, You're little, I pick you up. That's how it yeah. is. You're constantly. That's in, in across the board. Any yeah. any ancestral hunter gatherer, just whatever, you know, a culture that's still running the playbook of old mm-hmm. and present in, in many places with people that actually have children that um, you know don't have a lot of the issues that maybe some more isolated cultures do. Yep. Um, you come out of there and you are straight to your mom's shoulder. Yep. And they wrap you up and you got a little like hammock sling thing and you're connected to her heart rate and you're connected to her bre- her breathing pattern yep. and you're continually attuning to her as opposed to coming out and just figuring out how to attune to there's nothing there's no yeah. you've been connected to her for the last ever like you are her yep. and straight to snap straight to out of that. It seems like there would be some like whiplash effect in there somehow. For sure. For sure. So touch yeah. is huge. And again, that's something that so many people today are uncomfortable with because they haven't been raised in that environment where touch is mainly sexual. And uh, so to them, it's like, I mean, even think about how, how many people are uncomfortable getting a massage or it makes a huge difference to them whether they are getting a massage from a man or a woman. Like it's, it's nothing to do with sex. It's nothing to do with attraction or anything. It's some human using their energy to help you feel good in a way that's completely unrelated to sexuality. The fact that most people can't relax into it and feel like, 
you know, if they are a woman, only if a man does it or vice versa or something like that. It's just like, Jesus, man, just relax. It's just touch, you know, Mm. it's just being human. It's just, and it's, um, so there's that aspect. And then the, the verbal one that you mentioned, that most people are not raised in an environment where talking about emotions, particularly among men, even yeah. more so among men. Talking about emotions is just not how they are raised, which incidentally is completely uh, suicidal, in, even in the way of being attractive to women, because you know one thing that many women will look for in a guy, will they want him to be strong and tough and resilient? Yes, absolutely. But they also want somebody who is not an emotional idiot, who can actually listen to them, who is, cares about listening to what they have to say who has uh, insight to contribute to their emotional process, who can empathize with emotions, who's emotionally smart. And that's something that we just, plain and simple men, most of the time are not taught in, in our society. What do you think, and it's interesting that, you know, white middle-aged men are, at least from a socioeconomic perspective, uh, the most privileged, mm-hmm. and then they're also the most likely to for self-harm and and ending their own life thing. This is too much to handle. I, I wonder in, in like the state of like that, like that, like the patriarchy is bad, which I don't, you know, and there's different versions of sure. all of this stuff. I think there's, there's ultimately like, I think like the, the, the quote unquote bad version of patriarchy is comes from like, um, I recently read the book, uh, uh, what is it called? Warrior magician, King warrior, magician, lover. And in that, it refers to the the patriarchy as boy psychology, mm-hmm. you know, as it compared to compared to man psychology and actually being like an integrated human being. Yeah. And a lot of like the anger and the war and the, the greed and all of that, um, the suppressing of of other people for for your own. Um, a lot of that comes from a place of hurt, a crisis of root pain. And it's it's interesting. I, I feel like a lot of people, if you are a middle-aged white dude or just a white dude in general, it doesn't seem like in the last decade or so there's, there's as much space for you to even like have feelings. <laughs> you know, it's like f-, f you, first of all, all right, now what do you have to say? <laughs> you know? I mean, so many ways it really boils down to never having been raised that way, never having been taught that way, never having a role model of somebody who can communicate about emotions without, because the image is, oh, if you can communicate about emotion and you're a man, you're probably gay or you are, that means you're not strong or some shit. And it's like, it's the other way around. You know, the ability to be vulnerable, to be emotionally smart, is an addition to your strength. It's something that makes you stronger overall. It's something that, I mean, and the statistics don't lie. The fact that people are more likely to shoot themselves than learning how to communicate in some ways, that is a symptom that that's not strength, right? Mm-hmm. They are dying inside under this pressure because you've never learned the tools to actually how to use communication in a way that helps other people and helps you. I mean, I've had communications with people who are Smart people. I'm not picking on some poor, really smart, nice people who they would tell me about maybe problem with their teenager. And I was like, well, did you ever ask uh, him or her uh, what they feel about this? Or not even what they feel like, what they need from you. How could you, because you are clearly lost as how to help them. 
did you ever ask them, you know, what they need from you? What would, um, and they would look at me like, oh, no, I didn't. And to me, it's like the most obvious thing in the world is like, well, if your son or daughter is going through something and you don't know how to help them, you don't rush to find a solution. You don't rush to push them in a certain direction. You ask them, it's like, hey, what do you think the stuff you're dealing with, what can I do to help? Because you know that 100% that this is what I'm here for. I'll do anything. Let's just talk. Tell me what you're feeling. Tell me. I don't have a solution. Let's figure it out together. Let's see what. And just letting them feel that you are there for them, that you care, that you want to understand. You're not rushing to pushing your made-up solution on them to make them go away and shut up. That in itself will have a huge effect. And yet, it's so basic, right? It's like, to me, it's not even being a great communicator. That's like 101 level. And talking to people who are smart and nice, they will never do it. Not because they are opposed to it, because it, it never even entered their mind that that's an option. Yeah. And, as, and, and following up with the suggestion that you know, uh, white guys are, are hurting and need help, um, I, could, I could hear you know, some people in the background still kind of like naysaying and be like, well, you don't know what it's like to be this, the trans person or a black person or this. Yeah. I think ultimately it comes back to like, we're all going through stuff yeah. and it's, yeah. it's, it's impossible to measure one's pain and come into like a dick measuring contest. Well, my pain's more than your pain. Trust me. It's like, you don't know that, you know, the person that's, that's hanging themselves in their closet with a, with a, a belt and they have a million dollars in the bank and a hot yeah. wife, like you don't know their pain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whether they're black, white, fat, skinny, trans, straight, whatever, it's like, there's a, there's an opportunity for empathy and compassion around all, all, all humans and all, all beings. And if we can culturally, I believe, come to a point of compassion for ourselves and, you know, and practice compassion for other, which and ends up actually being a practice for self-compassion because we're all ultimately reflections of each other. Uh, that shit is healing. <laughs> you know? And if we can get out of the, the, like the, the, the victim competition sure. and get into to the, how can I help type conversation? I think regardless of your orientation, yeah. uh, I, I believe that, you know, that's a path forward to something better. Uh, but there's been a lot of, um, measuring of whose pain is more, and I think it's a, it's just it's such an impossible conversation. It's a dumb conversation because realistically, everyone who's alive will experience horrendous loss, pain, and suffering. There are no exceptions. You know, everybody goes through that stuff. Some people more than others. Some people earlier than others. But eventually, everybody goes through really horrendous stuff. That's just part of the nature of being alive. And so the assumption that uh, only I deserve to be... And also, like, there's some merit in pain. It's like, it sucks. I'm sorry for you. There's no badge of honor because you have been through more shit than somebody else. You know, there's no... Like, I remember talking with a student once, and she was having a breakdown over something that, if you look at it in the great scheme of things, was fairly trivial, wasn't the biggest thing in the world. And I think just to give her a sense of 
you know, ranges of things. I started bringing up things that had been going on with me, which were, objectively speaking, they were way more horrific than anything she's ever dealt with. But I wasn't doing it in a, oh, look, my pain is bigger than yours, so shut up. It's more like, hey, I get, I get suffering. You know, I understand suffering. And you're suffering over something that somebody would say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Well, clearly it is a big deal to you. So you are dealing whether there is no objective scale of suffering in a way, you know, one person thing that from the outside would look minor, but they suffer horrendously from it is not any worse or better than somebody going through major things also suffering horrendously. At the end of the day, you're both suffering horrendously. The stimulus was different, but who cares? The result is what counts. Yeah. So, so this, I feel like that was a good foundational layer for, um, suffering is is real (laughs) and we're all going through it and to some degree and joy and love and jubilance like it's all it's all part of the layers but the thing that's probably the stickiest for most people and leaves the greatest imprint would be the pain Mm -hmm. and if not processed it will keep on lurking its head out in your life in various different ways until it finally gets processed i think there's a physics to it i think that's just the way it works sure so I wonder from your experience, like how do you navigate your own internal suffering or your own internal pain or the moments that perhaps you may have felt, I'm projecting because I don't know your experience, but maybe felt like overwhelmed with anxiety mm-hmm. or overwhelmed with maybe depressive thoughts or I don't know if maybe you ever felt like I, maybe I don't need to be here anymore. Like what's the point of this? Right. Like when you're in like the darkest of dark places within yourself, how do you navigate that or historically how have you navigated that? Um, there are multiple aspects. I think on one level, one thing that always made me feel good in the middle of horrible things was a sense of defiance. You know, when things have been piling up one on top of the other and you feel like, Jesus Christ, what the hell, man? This is is beyond one, you know, one tragedy is one tragedy. When it's like two, three, or four, you're like, what's next? And, you know, you don't want to ask that question because you can always add more. But, like, there's an element of, like, this is as bad as I can handle and possibly more. And there's a level there where you feel like, no, you're not going to be able to change the situation. You know, you got dealt some really shitty cards. But there's a feeling there that I find often of, uh, you know what? Fuck you. You haven't squashed me yet. You have hit me with mm-hmm. everything you got and you have hurt me horrendously. There's no denying that. But you know what? I can still right in this second, I don't know about tomorrow, but right in this moment, I can find one breathing room to do something kind for somebody else or something even kind to myself. And as horrible as all the things that have happened can be, I still have power over this one tiny thing. And that gives me a sense of sort of pride and defiance over in the middle of the most horrible thing, I can survive on this one tiny breathing room. You know? And mm. then if I string enough of those moments in a row, there, there's actually a sense of pride that comes from being hit really hard by suffering and feeling like, Okay, motherfucker, I'm still standing here. I'm still here. So that's one that's, thing that usually tends to work for me. Um, yeah, that's like that's like I think like true freedom. Yeah, Liv- living a, a, a life in perpetual low level bracing mm-hmm. of waiting for the shoe to drop. Yeah, is 
in many ways way worse than the shoe actually dropping Mm -hmm. and you leaning into it with that defiant or maybe accepting or whatever approach and saying like you know unless i died in which case who knows you know maybe that would maybe that'd be great um you know who knows what, what that's like um but I'm still here. I'm still standing. And yeah. I, I, I really like that, like a sensation of defiance within it, almost, almost like, what else can you give me Yeah, kind of feeling as, a, as opposed to still bracing and, oh, no, no more. Oh, oh, not me. It's like, no, no, like, let's go. That's very like, kind of like a, I think that's why David Goggins became so popular. That's kind of, it seems like kind of his whole thing. People, there's, some, there's something about people that are like, ah, like that. There's something to that, I think. Yeah, because you're accept like you're not denying the fact that you got your ass kicked, or you're yeah. even likely to get your ass kicked tomorrow and the day after. You're not denying any of the because the moment you're trying to pretend that you have it together when you clearly don't, it makes it worse, right? So in a sense, you accepted the fact that my control over the situation is zero point one, and terrible things are happening. However, that zero point one still gives me that sense of like okay, you haven't taken everything away from me. I still have this much, you know? Mm. It's kind of like a rite of passage yeah. in a way. It's like if you don't get, like the, the, the function of a rite of passage is to, is to, in a way, die before you die. Mm-hmm. And so you go through some type of, of orientation or some type of, of, of practice of sorts where it's, there needs to be the sensation of I might actually die. Yeah. Or it's not like, it's, you know, it's not enough. Because if you're still holding on, then you're still kind of, you still have the ego, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you can come to a point um, where it's, what was the, what's the, the, um, the movie with the, uh, what was it? Was it called November, 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 remember November? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What's it, what's it, what's it, what's uh, it movie called? Was it V for Vendetta? Yes, V for Vendetta. That's what he takes the gal through. Mm-hmm. When she's in the little prison cell and he shaves her head and starves her and, you know, all, all the things. And eventually she comes to a point where she's like, bro, you can kill me. Like, I don't, I don't care. I'm not attached. And like, it's, and that was her freedom. That was the hero's journey for her. From that point forward, she transitioned into freedom. Mm-hmm. Before that, she was a scared girl. Yeah. After that, she was an integrated woman and she had accepted all that could be. It's like, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm invincible at this point yeah. because I've actually accepted all that, you know, all, any of the trauma that you could throw my way. Um, I'm, I'm here for it. You know, and that, that's like, I think that's what perhaps subconsciously many people are uh, seeking mm-hmm. in a way because there's a knowing that there's some, some kinks in their armor. And so perhaps in a way it's like we're all like seeking a certain rite of passage and sometimes it ends up you know feeling quite traumatic in a way i don't yeah. know that, i think that was i don't know that that was the most organized way of describing that but it feels almost like a rite of passage or it could be i'll i'll read you a thing that i wrote at some point that was um it's a, i think it was yeah it's in my book not afraid there's a passage i'll try to cut it it's not that long but i'll try to cut it a little shorter but it very much is exactly about this issue right and it's uh, let's see, it goes, fear is written in the deepest layer of our DNA. You can't run away from it. You can't escape it. It's so pers- pervasive that plenty of people try to exorcise the demon. Religions, philosophies, advertisements, motivational speakers, 
they all tell you that if you make the jump and follow their cure, you'll no longer have anything to fear. They tell you that there are no monsters hiding under your bed. They promise you safety from everything you fear. They promise you a sense of empowerment. They promise you victory against all odds. The reality is that they are trying to sell you something. The monster is indeed under your bed after all. The reality is that you have every good reason to be afraid because everything you fear is on your tracks right now and will eventually catch up to you and destroy everything you loved and everything you are. Welcome to the world, motherfuckers. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be more appropriate to be scared shitless or rightfully so? (laughs) Being scared does not help you. The reality is uglier and harsher than anything we like to admit to ourselves, and yet it's pointless to be scared since your fear will not protect you. Fear is only useful if it alerts you of a danger you can avoid. But if there's no possible way to avoid it, if it's inevitable that it will crash you no matter how hard you fight, then what's the point of being afraid? If you have no hope of survival, what's left to be afraid of? The only thing you succeed in doing is in spoiling this very second when the forces that will destroy you haven't stepped onto the stage yet. Yes, you will not get out of here alive. But so what? All the more reason to celebrate right here and right now. Let's pop the champagne before all hell breaks loose. Squeeze every last ounce of orgasmic ecstasy from the present moment. And when the monster finally climbs out from under your bed, at least you'll have a good reason to smile before it devours you. You're already dead. Let's have a party in the meantime. That's good. That's my attitude about this stuff. You know, it's not denying the horror. That's the fact that horrible things do happen and will happen. But to go with the fact, yeah, but they haven't, maybe they, some of them may have happened already, but the game is not over. I'm going to find a one ounce of joy I can squeeze out of today in spite of it all. That's really good. I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I'm like, I'm, I'm marinating. <laughs> well, I'll go on a different round then. Like one th- another thing, <laughs> the defiant aspect, one that has helped me in the past. Like last time I was really depressed. That's the one thing that snapped me out of it. And it's very yeah. related to the theme we talk about today is a human connection. Like I was, uh, was in a funk. I had made a horrible mistake of trying to read all of my father's books a few months after he had died. <clears throat> and I realized it was too much, more than I could handle. So I was getting really sad and really depressed. Mm. So I stopped reading them, but by that point, I'd opened that door and I was stuck in that space. And, you know, a few days, I go through it and I see my lady and my daughter. They are both really sweet to me and understanding and all of it. But as the days keep going, I see that I'm having a big impact on them. I see that they are so sad for me. Hmm. And it's weird because I couldn't do it for myself. I couldn't snap out. I wanted not to be in that space, but I couldn't do it. But when I saw the impact it had on them, there was something in me that switched that said, fuck no, I don't care if you have to burst your head through 22 walls in a row right now, but you are getting out of it now because you're fucking them up and they don't deserve it. Hmm. And so in that sense, that love for somebody else 
was the only force that could break me out of a shitty mental prison where I was and I couldn't find a way out. You tired of tossing and turning all night, never getting a good night's rest? Well, you're not alone. Over 70 million Americans suffer from insomnia. That's why my friends from Buy Optimizers have some great news for you. They've created Sleep Breakthrough, the ultimate solution to consistently getting your best night's sleep. Sleep Breakthrough is the first fully optimized, delicious sleep drink designed to help you fall asleep in minutes. Experience deep, high-quality sleep and wake up feeling refreshed and energized every morning. If you happen to wake up in the middle of the night, Sleep Breakthrough will help you fall back to sleep in no time. This means you can say goodbye to lying awake in bed, stressing about when you'll finally drift off. And no more groggy mornings or feeling like you didn't get enough sleep. Visit Sleep sleepbreakthrough.com slash align podcast to learn more and order now that's s-l-e-e-p-b-r-e-a-k-t-h-r-o-u-g-h.com slash align podcast in addition to the discount you get using promo code align 10 for select orders you'll receive a pair of blue light blocking glasses and other special gifts this is a limited time offer so don't wait go now to sleepbreakthrough.com slash align podcast I want to take a moment and share about something that has truly made a massive difference in my life as of recent. That is going through the diagnostic process with LifeForce. LifeForce is a health optimization company that is bringing a personalized approach to help you take control of your health. It all starts with the LifeForce Diagnostic, a comprehensive blood test that measures over 40 biomarkers that impact your mental and physical health, from your nutrient levels to hormone balance to key risk factors for disease and much more. The LifeForce Diagnostic gave me a snapshot of precisely what the heck is happening inside of my body. Then the next step, I jumped on a call with a Life Force functional medicine doctor, and she was absolutely amazing. I asked her a whole gamut of questions, and uh, it was probably a pretty annoying patient, I would say, because I just kept asking questions, and she kept having answers. She was incredibly welcoming, incredibly sweet, and just really brilliant with the information. Um, so she mapped out a very clear, concise plan uh, for me. Uh, she was working with me. I think it, I just felt very supported the whole time. Uh, some of the things that we saw there was a deficit with me was particularly DHEA uh, and then also omegas. So they got me on a couple nutraceuticals and I swear to God, um, I, since starting these guys, I feel almost uncomfortable saying it like this because it's an ad, but it truly made a massive difference. My word recall, my energy levels, my libido um, has has significantly shifted since starting. So I'm freaking excited and I would absolutely implore any of y'all to at least get the diagnostic done so you can get that snapshot of what's going on inside of your blood, what is going on inside of your biology so you're not guessing. You know exactly what's happening and then you can start making decisions from there. If you'd like to get 15% off, uh, you can go to mylifeforce.com. That's M-Y-L-I-F-E-F-O-R-C-E.com and then use align code at checkout for 15% off. And that is a very meaningful 15% off as well. So I can't recommend it enough. I think you guys are going to really dig it. I think it's going to be really amazing for your own health journey. Jump over to mylifeforce.com and use the align code for 15% off. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, 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 there's a value in grieving, an immense value in grieving yeah. and a value in accepting suffering and accepting pain and leaning into it and 
you know, allowing it to unravel mm -hmm. the way that it does. And then there's also a value in um, knowing when it's time and maybe it oscillates, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it's, maybe it's goes something where you, you, you grieve for two hours, you know, you grieve for 30 minutes in the morning yep. and you actually grieve, mm -hmm. you, you cry and you wail and you punch pillows, you hit a punching bag and you scream and you spit and you like, just like, ah, maybe you throw up, you know, you, you like, you, you, you like, that's, you know, I've never had that experience. I've been close to that before actually, mm -hmm. but like dry heaving. Cause you're yep. like, you're so just like, ah. I've had that during, doing ayahuasca and such, which is interesting that that actually is a mechanism that happens with a person that's so sad. Mm -hmm. There's another interesting thing. You've probably heard of uh, Takatsubo cardiomyopathy, which is when the broken heart syndrome is, is, is what it's, what it's known as. Um, and it's a person can be so sad that the, uh, I believe it's the left ventricle of the heart enlarges and, uh, atrophies. And it feels as though you're having a heart attack because right. you're so, figuratively and literally brokenhearted yeah. through a situation. And it's fascinating that the body has these adaptive mechanisms in the form of crying, in the form of sob, ah, like needing to yell, scream, ah, punch, release energy, whatever ever way you do. Um, and it's, it's all physiological. It's all embodied. And that's another thing that I think particularly from a masculine perspective, the tendency would be to maintain stoicism. Yeah. <sighs> okay. I'll be with it. <sighs> Deep breaths, nose breathing. It's like, no, bro. <laughs> like, <laughs> like your body is trying to actually go through a, a really beautiful, natural yep. mechanism to release stored stress. And you're constipating yourself. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting how that works. Like the embodied aspect of, of, of releasing emotion. It's so important. So important. That's why when people are like, I haven't cried in five years. I'm like, that's yeah. something to boast about. We don't brag about that, bro. <laughs> like, that's not you don't win a gold medal for that. I fucking cry for everything. You know what I mean? I can watch the shittiest movie on earth and I, if I find anything to be moved by, I will gladly go with it. And I never see it as uh, antithetical to being strong. Yeah. I feel it as part of what allows me to be strong is to uh, A, acknowledge my limitations, B, allow the emotions to wash through me, rather than being repressed in there somewhere where then when they really explode, they explode not in a healthy way. Yeah. I mean, fuck, we are talking right now, just telling you the story of like, like my daughter and my lady being so damn sad for me and that being the motivation. I don't know if you know it. I fucking got teary-eyed right there. I had like one lonely tear going down my eye as we were speaking just as I was thinking that because to me it was like, it's a movie. Like I one of the things I love the most in life is to be moved by something. Yeah. Move to where you do start feeling the little tear coming down from your eye because you feel so strongly about something, the beauty of something or somebody doing acting in a way that in my mind is heroic because whether they show vulnerability or they do something for somebody else or they, to me, those are the really probably the best moments of life. Yeah, I think we yearn to feel yeah. and we have a lot of repressed uh, lack of sensation or repressed sensation. 
And I think that that's, that's why a lot of um, our, uh, I, I think they'd be like compensatory patterns come out and maybe uh, pathological sexual behaviors or pathological addictive compulsive behaviors in various different forms. Yep. And I think, it, I think a lot of that comes from just like, or maybe, maybe someone self harms, maybe like mm-hmm. cut, cut themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't know a lot about that, but you know, hypothetically I, I could venture to guess perhaps that's some sensation, maybe seeking control, mm-hmm. um, maybe seeking to, to, to feel, and there's been a lot of repression yep. and it's just like, God, oh, I just want to feel, mm-hmm. um, yeah, man, the human is deep. <laughs> humans, humans, there's a lot going on in, in there. <laughs> and that's why, because I mean, ultimately, nobody, none of us fully understand. We don't fully understand ourselves. We don't know what's I going on. Know. So that's why I think it's good to talk to yeah. back and forth like. with friends to understand. Because. And that's one thing too, like the more somebody's uh, hyped up, either they hype themselves up or other people look at them for a strong, the more in the face of somebody bringing up a problem, they want to rush to a solution. Like they always have it under control. Mm. They know what the thing to do is. Here is what you do. And to me, there's a great power in having conversation with people where you're not trying to rush them to what you think their solution is. Yeah, because uh, a you don't know, so you really want to listen to them before you. Maybe even if you are right, maybe if your initial intuition was correct, it feels pretty. If you tell somebody, and that's why also even lots of parent kids have conflict because a kid will have an issue, and the parent is like, "Here, ready made. This is the solution. Do this and that," and the kid feels like, "Fuck you! You haven't even listened to what I'm going." Yeah, you didn't listen to me. You don't know to, and even if you are right. It doesn't feel like a cooperative effort here where the solution naturally springs from our conversation. And maybe what I was seeking with these fires that I'm manifesting actually was just to be seen and heard. I just wanted to be listened to. Exactly. That's why I spray spray painted your your car. (laughs) You know, like you don't pay attention. Like I don't feel connected to you. I mean, yeah. And so when I have, I've been burnt in the past. When I sent out my little olive branches of connection, you weren't present enough to be there with it for me. Yep. And so now I'm going to light the kitchen on fire. Yep. You know, and that's like, there, there's like the, whatever that is the, the, the story about the, 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 a, a boy in like a, a village in Africa. How does it go? It's like, if a, if a boy doesn't feel the warmth of the village, then he'll light the village on fire to, to feel the warmth. That's not exactly how it goes, but even still feel connected to the village or like loved within the village. He'll light the village on fire to feel its warmth. I think is how that goes. Make perfect sense. Cause it's makes a lot of sense. Even physiologically think about like, you know, when people are angry, they raise their voice. Yeah. On a surface, it doesn't make sense. Why the hell would you be raising right. your voice to express? Right. You don't hear me. And that's exactly what it is, right? It's like it's yeah. almost like you're right. not hearing where I'm coming from, so I need to speak louder so that maybe we'll get through. And it's funny how it works. It's like it makes no sense on one level, but it makes perfect sense on another, right? It's like yeah. you're not hearing me. So my anger will come through with a louder voice in the hope that maybe you will get it then. Yeah. And that comes back to the the whole alexithmia stuff, the, the lack of being able to actually 
interpret one's internal experience into something that is um, understandable yeah. for yourself and for other people. And then also acknowledging perhaps you're in relation in that moment with someone that has their own version of that. And maybe they have like alexithmia from the sense of they're incapable of, of hearing uh, what's actually happening within the tone of your voice. What's ap- happening within your mannerisms? Yeah. What's your body language? Right. You know, like like that's how we communicate. Mm-hmm. We don't. Words are, you know, the Albert Morabian, who's a psychologist in the sixties, he said that that words are about seven percent of our communication when it comes to if there's any incongruence between body language, tone, mm-hmm. and words. Ninety three percent of the time, we'll trust body language and tone. Yep. And if you're so wrapped up in what's happening with your whatever distractions you will begin to lack empathy. And there's also been research around that of, of children spending too much time looking at screens. Mm-hmm. If you spend too much time looking at a two-dimensional screen, i.e., you know, your cell phone and your computer, and the average screen time for each person, probably especially kids, I don't know what it is exactly, but it's a lot, yeah. uh, it actually reduces your capacity for empathy to be able to feel someone. Yeah. If you can't feel someone else, good luck feeling yourself. And what will that translate to? Eventually, it translates to some version of, of emotional constipation. And what that translates to is typically going to be an outburst or violence or something. Yep. And it's what's happening at a deeper level is you want to feel seen and heard. Uh, that's the truth right there. And uh, I guess in that regard, I would love to pick your brain and get your advice on this. Because it seems, oh. based on what we are saying, that we're saying a key element of uh, health is communication, is knowing how to communicate, is knowing how to have empathy, how to read other people's emotion, how to be there for them, how to... Because most people are not bad people who just want to be shitty communicators and not deliver to somebody else what they need. They just don't have the tools. Mm. Um, how do you go about... Like, if you grow up that way, great, you have it. But if you didn't grow up that way... How do you help people, which is the majority of people, who don't have very good communication tools? I mean, what do you do? Do you package it? As, like, I have a hard time picturing, other than, you know, the sort of an image that I don't like, which is the seminar where let's teach you the seven principles of communication or some crap like that, which makes me sort of sick just thinking about it. Yeah. But at the same time, something like that is needed. How do you, I don't know, is there, is that something that just you need to get from your family and friends? Is that something that can be taught in a different setting? Is that... If you, if you don't get it from your family and friends, there's the opportunity to, to relearn it and repattern it. Mm-hmm. I think that one thing would be coming from a place of understanding that you are two nervous systems attempting to attune to each other. Mm-hmm. And if there's dissonance on one side or both sides, you're not going to have connection and it'll be turmoil. If you have congruence on one side where there's one nervous system that's regulated, that can, that can help to guide a dysregulated nervous system into a place of homeostasis and like, (sighs) and so the first thing I think would be, unless you want to be completely codependent on other people's regulation, it would be learning how to self-regulate and acknowledging, okay, interesting. My mind is racing. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking violent thoughts. I'm yelling. My breath is up in my shoulders. I'm mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. My pupils are, you know, dropped into this like shark myopic vision. I'm in a, an autonomic state to kill. 
probably not the best time to say or do whatever I thought was a good idea. Right. Yes. So first, it's it's having enough self awareness and 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 listening and observation to be able to like, oh, interesting. The Daniele's nervous system is wildly dysregulated right now. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay, that's the first thing. How do we do that? It's embodiment. You are a body first, thought second. Like right. your body first. Yeah. And so coming in, say, I'm going to do a long exhalation. I'm going to relax my vision for a moment. I'm going to come into my like seven step Tony Robbins, whatever. You know, I'm going to go into panoramic vision for a moment. I'm going to kind of like just space out for a second, just kind of take the whole room in. Okay, I'm going to go for a walk. Mm -hmm. I'm going to actively scan the horizon, go through this kind of back and forth, which is essentially, you know, that's the the origins of EMDR therapy is the woman was taking a walk outside. You know, you have this forward ambulation, forward walking, you're scanning, it's sending the system, the the, the signal to your nervous system that you're moving towards progress. I'm going to get some natural sunlight as opposed to being in this, you know, highly radiated blue lit room that's inherently aggravating Mm -hmm. and agitating. Um, I'm going to exercise. I'm going to start to upregulate some of like the feel good neurochemistry and hormones and, you know, all the things that make me feel a little bit more clear. I'm going to discharge this stress on my own as opposed, as opposed to pouring it on my partner or my friend or my whoever. And then, okay, let's come back, man. I see you completely different. I like wanted to choke you 30 minutes ago. Right. I see you completely different, you know? And then I think, uh, from there, hopefully you have a partner or friend or whoever, you know, you're having experiences like that with, or just with yourself that also has the, the sense of self-awareness, um, and like consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, which I don't like that using that word a lot. Cause it's a little, it's been, uh, co-opted a bit. It's a little fluffy. Sure. Um, but they just have that self-awareness and introspection and, and interest in like doing better, mm-hmm. um, to be able to look at those aspects within themselves. Uh, and then if you're with a person, uh, breathe together. You know, notice if a person's breath is, (laughs) you be the anchor. This is, comes to kind of Tony Robbins stuff, like, like neuro-linguistic programming, Richard Bandler, all those people, um, you be the anchor point and say, okay, like my breath is the anchor. You can be out of control. You you can be flipping around the room. I'm going to stay here, you know, and your vision is the anchor and your body language that you keep your body language open. You know, as opposed to going into a defensive posture or, you know, shifting your hips towards the door, like, I'm going to get out of here, sending the signal to that person, like, okay, you're about to leave. It's like, no, no, I'm here with it. Like, you're safe. Yeah. Um, that would be my, like, beginning kind of training wheel suggestion. Very interesting. Yeah, because I think stuff like that, figuring out uh, some tools that people who are decent at communication have naturally. But people who are not just were never taught finding things, finding things, and kind of almost packaging them in a way that somebody who did not grow up with that in their family or in their circle of friends can start picking up some tools. I guess when I look around, I often see nice people. This person is a pretty nice person. This person is a nice person. And then I look at that communicate and I just I'm like, oh my God. Like, I see where mm-hmm. you're coming from. You're really nice and you mean well, but God damn, you just said the right thing that's going to trigger them the wrong way. They're not going to hear what you have to say. You're going right. to. So, like, 
I feel that <clears throat> learning that is something that theoretically should be taught in school if schools actually deliver the stuff that we need for life. But because that's not the case, I'm really curious at what could be done in that regard to create something like even the scenario you described, you know, having tools that are physical, having tools that are emotional, having tools that are, you know, little things that can help people hear each other remain open to each other when there's no clear-cut solution right away yeah and like i really cannot find too many things that are more important than that and yet that's a skill that seems very basic it seems like human 101 you know of course you should be a decent communicator and yet it's extremely rare and so um i think also it takes a lot of um self-work you could say again, more kind of like buzzwords that I find a little annoying. Um, but uh, confidence in oneself to not need to be right, because mm-hmm. ultimately, if you need to be right, it's because at a deeper level you feel wrong. Yeah, yeah. And it could have been from since you were a baby. It could yeah. have been since you were a teenager. It could have, you feel something about you in this conversation? It's stirring something up within you that feels inherently wrong, and you you need to prove that you are right. Mm-hmm. And I will ridicule you and I will criticize you and I will do anything I can for you to feel bad so that I, relative to you, your piece of shit ass, I am right. Yeah. And all of that, having the self-awareness to come back and be like, hold on, like, why did I need to like rub that person's face? And like, was that, hold on, was I, was there something, huh? Right. Something with me there? (laughs) You know, and so being able to come into a a place of being like, I don't need to be right, Mm -hmm. man. You know, and, 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 and to come to a place to be able to accept that your subjective experience is 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Whatever you feel right now is 100% correct. Objectively, maybe not so much, but subjectively, like I honor your experience 100% and like the realness of this for you and not in a patronizing condescending way, like truly. Yeah. You know, and that's, you know, Martin Luther King, he had a, a thing of like, if your opponent, again, paraphrasing, but if your opponent senses contempt, there could be no conversation. Uh-huh. So if you're coming from that lens of like, I'm going to get you, I'm going to win this one, there will be no dialogue. It will just be argument. And so that, once again, it's like, hopefully you have two individuals engaged in this type of quote unquote, like work or whatever, self-awareness. Um, but if you don't, if you at least have one, then that one can act as the adult you know, and act as the anchor and say, okay, like I, I see that you're in your pain. Um, I see that you're angry. I see that your nervous system is off the charts right now. I'm going to not move from this position. I'm not going to judge you. I'm just going to be with that. You know, and I think that that can diffuse a lot of things, but it's, it's not easy when someone is hissing and spitting and calling you a piece of shit and saying you're a loser and saying you're, you're good for nothing for you to, if you're, if there's any tendril of insecurity in you mm-hmm. you will react yeah and your reaction will be probably to criticize and you will just be in a forest fire yeah 100 percent. i think in that regard like what you're heading in the direction of i think is a, another key principle of communication is uh, stating from the get-go I want you to get something. I want you to get what you want from this conversation. You know, I want you to, this is not, because so many people get into conversations that are a little tense as a competition. Like for me to get what I want, I need to defeat you. You need to not get what you want. Whereas 
if we do that, there's not even point talking. Let's just kill each other and be done with it. You know, one of us will survive and have their way and we're good. But in that sense, to have a conversation where it's like, look, nothing good is going to come out of this unless we both get something we want from this. So yeah. I'm heavily invested in making sure that you get what you want because that's the only way that we're going to have a decent result where I can also get some. So let's work a strategy together where given the sometimes opposite needs and different desires, how we can work in a way that we can walk away from this conversation without hating each other. Because at that point, it doesn't matter who's right or wrong. It has gone to shit already. It's a bad result, you know? Yeah. The other, the other thing I've been doing, like going, going pretty balls deep the last few months and like intimacy and relationships and things of the sort. Um, so I've had a lot of, of the, the world's, you know, most respected thought leaders on these conversations. I'm very grateful to have had that opportunity. Um, the, one of the things that I've learned through them that I find to be really supportive is that the fight is fine. Like the turmoil, the self loathing, the anxiety, the depression, the, you know, the, the unacceptable thoughts that may be passing through one's mind. Um, it's the repair that is the most important. And that was one of the questions that I had for, for, uh, somebody on my podcast, cause they were, they were talking about like fighting around your kids, mm-hmm. you know, or like in your experience, like being depressed around your kids, uh, that that's beautiful. It's actually really good. Mm-hmm. Like, like I had Gabor Mate on the podcast just recently. That episode came out just a few weeks ago. And that was one of his, in this book, The Myth of Normal, one of his suggestions of like the four most important things for healthy childhood development is a child needs to know that every emotion is fine. Mm-hmm. There is no, if you're, if you grow up and you learn that anger is, is bad, yeah. You are are divorcing yourself from something that's an inherent function to your health and well being. Anger is a protective mechanism. Yeah, like it's it's an alarm system on your house. You don't want to say like alarm systems are bad. Alarm systems are functional. Right. You know, and so and so with within that, it's like cool. My partner and I got in a fight. It was it got kind of intense. We we got heated. Um, we really like expressed, and then we hugged afterwards and then we breathed together afterwards and maybe we made love lighter maybe we made dinner together maybe we like shared what we're grateful for about each other that's the full story arc like that's incredible that's like like it's it's, that's incredibly adaptive strategy to to for any human being to be exposed to um compared to repression yeah it's an interesting by the way government is a genius i love that guy he's just so brilliant so I think it's uh, it's a fine line, and I don't mean it as a criticism because I agree. I agree with that point completely. However, it's a fine line between it's a balancing act between, for example, with kids, exposing yeah. them to real stuff, exposing them to something where look, it's not always pretty and perfect, and because that's fake, that's not reality. So you want on one end expose them to real stuff and explain it to them. And on the other end, expose them so much that it becomes like an unstable yeah. environment where there's too much, like the end, you know, oh, because anger is good. So I'm just going to snap at everything that happens because it's a, my healthy right. way to process it. But in the meantime, you're throwing a bunch of shit out there that other people have to deal with. It's yeah. a delicate, 
you know, I've done it in somewhat schizophrenic fashion where I just go sometime really easy and sometime I have a, I go and then I have to go back and go like, look, that was not a brilliant way to handle it. I fucked up. Don't think that that was A, directed to you or B, healthy in a big way. Like if I had been smart, I would have dealt with that emotion in another route. But this is what being human is. I fucked up. I know it. I'm going to work hard not to express it in that same way because that was uncalled for. And sometimes it's bullshit. You know, it's not the end of the world. But like, you know, little kids, for example, they'll push your buttons every day, not even because they are mean or they want to push your buttons, just because they are kids. So, you know, like the fifth time that your kid, a three-year-old, dropped the milk on the floor, you're like, God damn it, can you fucking <laughs> But then you go and you're like, how do I really yell at a little three-year-old over drop right. milk? He's like, what the fuck is wrong with me? And, and you know, there's a balance there, right? On one end is you show, hey, I'm human. I got my frustration. So you dropping the milk for the fifth time in two hours kind of gets to me. And on the other end is, hey, man, this does not deserve my anger toward you. You did nothing wrong. You're just being a kid, and that's fine. Yeah. In an ideal world, try to hold a little tighter to the cup, but hey, shit happens, and, and my reaction was an overreaction. So I don't know. It's funny. I find both to be true at the same time. Yeah, I don't I don't have any business talking about parenting because I don't have a kid. Um, but the and, and what I meant in that of having like the heated mm-hmm. discussion, you know, isn't like, we are punching each other in the sure, face and course. throwing wine bottle wine bottles of across course. the room. It's that we're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that the I heard a, a thing from Ramdas from what he said in one of his 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 like discourses that I listened to. He said, I don't know, I don't I haven't like read about the research, but he said that they did some research in Stanford um that I think he led or was a part of that was around uh the effect of spanking mm-hmm. a kid. And what he said in one of the, his books that I, I, I on Audible that I listen to a lot uh, was that it wasn't it wasn't the actual act of spanking that had the effect. It was how you were spanking. So were you spanking and maintaining love? Right. You're like, I love you. You did a thing in this house. This is you know our process. I love you so much. Hop up. You know, compared to I'm taking out my old, this is where like the unhealthy toxic side of the patriarchy comes in. I have unhealed aspects of my childhood that now I'm toxically pouring onto you in an abusive way. And there's no love. This is actually just old hurt of mine that I haven't, I haven't done the work to process. And now I'm pouring that onto you for you to now grow up into a semi dysregulated human being that will then hopefully have the opportunity to process it before you pass it on to your kids. And that's why it's so hard to teach somebody else any of this stuff, because on the surface, looking at it from the outside, it may sound like you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing, depending on what it defines right or wrong as good steps. But like, it's more than what you do or what you say or how you act. That's important, clearly. I mean, there are some things that are fucked up in all contexts and some things that are probably good in all contexts. But majority of stuff is depending on your tone, your attitude, your the specific situation, where the other person is coming from. You know, so many things have so many variables attached to it. That there is no simple, that's why I was going with the seven principles of, not because there's anything wrong with the seven principles or whatever manual you come up with, but because it's too dogmatic. You know, it's too 
do step one, two, and three, and you will always be good. And it's like, eh, maybe, maybe. Step one is good, however, depending on how you handle it and how you do it and how you, because even the right thing can uh, produce a wrong result if done in a certain way, you know? And that's yeah. what's funny, that it's uh, it's a constant, delicate... To me, really, that's life, right? It's like surfing. It's a constant adjusting of your balance because anytime you think you have the right path, you're probably about to fall off, you know? It's like, yeah. oh, we need to tilt it a little bit this way, now a little bit the other side, and it's... And that's true for even the things that are true in most contexts and are useful in most contexts. They still require that delicate touch that allow you to adapt. Well, I mean, I think it's a balance of you could be excessively dogmatic and say, okay, I read this one book three years ago. And now every time I approach every type of of challenge in my life through these six steps uh, compared to I've read lots of books. I've been around lots of mentors and Mm -hmm. teachers and people that I respect. And I've gathered tools yep. and now I have tools. Yep. And now in this situation, maybe there's, maybe I could, you know, activate the mammalian dive yeah. reflex and I can put my face into it like an icy thing of water or I can jump into the cold plunge or I can get some sunlight or I can go for a walk. I right. can exercise. I can do some, a breathing thing. I can, you know, whatever, go through a gratitude list. Like there's no one thing that is, is aha, step one, two, yeah. but having tools. Oh, yeah. Is, is great. Like if you're driving in your car, mm-hmm. it's great to understand if suddenly the back left side is like flipping around and it feels like you're kind of maybe like drifting a little bit. Yeah. It's great to understand like, mm, I think tire pressure. Um, okay, tools. I get a compressor. I'm going to check the tire. Pre- ah, it's, it's low. Okay, I'm going to fill it up. Ah, cool. You know, so like it's, it's, underst- it's like learning the machine. You have to learn the machine. And then from there, in that process of learning the machine, inevitably tools will will present themselves. And then it's being able to actually engage in life and engage in relationships with you know people and yourself, and be able to exercise the tools. And then eventually, there becomes this like tool fluency, yeah. compared to dogmatically being stuck in the kind of you know crunchy step one, two, three. Oh shit, this isn't working. What do we do? Yeah hammer every solution requires hammering something it's like no nice yeah. tool when yeah. it's you needed yeah completely yeah um should we wrap wrap this piece up yeah let's do it i feel like that was uh that was fun man that was i appreciate I, I really appreciate uh getting to get in all this all this stuff is there anything else that you think would be supportive to share in relation to we started off i mean i think it was all quite relevant to it but we started off with the the loneliness epidemic, particularly with with men, but I mean, I think you know any person. That's just, yeah, you know, it's unsuspecting that the friendship recession, as it's called in this article that I'm re- reading, is apparently hitting hardest within men, but you know, all people. Uh, and then we got into intimacy and communication and embodiment and a lot of different things. Um, how would you like to close this conversation, Danielle? I think as a takeaway, if you take away nothing else. Call your friends. Make it a point of make it a regular thing to reach out to people you care about in your life, not for any particular reason, just to check on them, how they are doing, hear what they have to say, have a pleasant conversation. And I get we're all busy. You know, we're all chronically, we live in a society where we're chronically valuing productivity and being busy and all that crap. 
So do mm-hmm. it in those moments. You know, you go take the dog for a walk, call your friend. You are in the car, call your friend. You do things where uh, I think that's the moment you stop doing it is when things really go to shit. It's like you may not solve all of society's problems that way, but it sure beats the alternative. Yeah. And also I think that, that within that, something that I've learned through going through like my, my own emotional turmoils, um, busyness isn't necessarily an indicator of well-being and muscles aren't necessarily an indicator and money and power and influence are not necessarily indicators of well-being like oftentimes they can really almost exclusively be brilliant compensatory mechanisms to unaddressed shit and the fuel that's running the, the the fire to execute on all of those tasks could actually still be rooted in some unaddressed hurt within that person. And it's just this ongoing distractive mechanism. And, you know, that fuel can be pretty cool. Like if you have like deep Mm -hmm. anxiety, it's like, oh, it's so, it feels like a nuclear bomb inside of my chest and and my abdomen. I don't know what to do with it. And you can alchemize that and turn that into like, I'm going to go train. Mm-hmm. I'm going to schedule some meetings. I'm going to do some collaborations with some people. I'm going to, I'm going to read a, well, you might not read a book because you might not be able to focus, but I'm going to like have output. Mm-hmm. Um, that's also pretty cool yeah. in a way, you know, but just because someone is, is quote unquote, like winning doesn't mean that internally they feel that way. Most of the time you see uh, it's almost a stereotype. People who have insane success sometimes, you look at them and you're like, why are they so damn miserable? And it's like, yeah. they got to find out that what everybody else thinks that their life will turn around and be great when they achieve X amount of money or the perfect body or whatever, then they get there and they are still feeling empty as fuck, which makes them 10 times more messed up because they are not just looking to happiness is just around the corner they turn the corner and they still didn't find it and that clearly becomes an issue yeah we've kind of like culturally been sold a bag of like artificial goods mm-hmm. i don't think that's the t- i think there's a better phrase i was trying to come up with but i don't know what it is but the, like w- like we've been sold the idea that when you get these superficial markers of success you will feel good mm-hmm. and that is not not accurate like there is there is something to a lot of it comes to relativity yeah. rel- relativity on the socioeconomic hierarchy, like where you're at in the ladder. So it's a lot of it has to do with like your exposure to other people. So if you're a big fish in a small pond, you'll probably feel pretty good and high, you know, high testosterone and all that stuff. And then if you get placed in another pond, depending upon your operating system, that might stir you up and be challenging. Um, But the idea that you will be happy when Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that comes from like early advertising. And I'm sure you're familiar with Edward Bernays. He's the nephew of Sigmund Freud. That was like the beginning of like considered the father of modern advertising, popularized freedom sticks, you know, or, or I think freedom sticks, women smoking cigarettes. Right. And it was like an indication of them kind of sticking it to the man and like yeah. their independence and sovereignty and whatnot. And suddenly it became uh, sales started to become more of something of around identity as opposed to the quality of a product. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, if you can sell someone the idea that they're at a deficit, they're lacking um, at like a, a deep, like, right. like internal, internal like level of their personality and, and their, their personhood. And when they get this thing, whew, it's all going to come together. Mm-hmm. Man. That times 20 million advertisements since you're a little baby. Yeah. 
it'll have an effect. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, happy people make shitty customers. So we need to make you feel that you have something lacking, that if you buy these, everything is going to work out okay. Yeah. Um, all right, so we're gonna we're gonna post. I think we're gonna post this on both of our podcasts. We'll we'll see how it goes. Uh, so so my podcast is called the Align Podcast. Uh, people want to listen to an episode in relation to some of this stuff. I'd say go back to listen to the Gabor Mate episode that was just a few weeks ago. Uh, and what's your what's your info or or, or how should how should we sure where should people go from your end? So this one I'll post on the Drunken Taoist podcast, which is um, Drunken Taoist is. Um, chatty interview kind of podcast but uh, then the other one i do is uh, the other podcast i host is called history on fire where i mm. do deep dives on some characters or events in history and try to tell them in a in a way that doesn't feel like your high school teacher but it feels like you're at the edge of your seat waiting to find out what's happening next so that's the goal of that game cool uh well thank you so much for doing this i appreciate you thank you all for tuning in that is it. That is all over now. Hope you guys devoured that conversation. Uh, thank you so much for sharing this. I think this is an important one to share. I think people need it. Uh, that was the intention of having the conversation with Daniele. I posted a thing on Instagram recently that got shared something like 2,500 times or so. And it was around the loneliness epidemic, or the friendship recession that's happening among particularly men, but people in general. Uh, and the amount of internal pain that culture, much of culture is experiencing, and uh, just that there is a solution. That solution is connecting with community. That is communication, learning how to communicate, feeling safe to communicate, um, safe, safe to communicate vulnerable sensations and feelings. And uh, that is, I just think it's so important, man. Um, so thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for leaving us reviews. I'll see you next week.